Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. dedicated to Henry Foreman. In the years of the Stands before me, figure in black, which points at me. Turn around quick and start to run. Find out I'm the chosen one. Oh no, please, God, help me. Yes, 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 I know. I couldn't resist it. Doing a little bit of Sabbath singing, etc., etc. Um, I'm Al Naval. Welcome to Agitators Anonymous. No, I'm not losing my mind. I just had my mind completely blown again by the first Black Sabbath album at the weekend. Me and my friend were having a few sups, having a listen. 
pulled out the original vinyl. That's the crackle you heard at the start of the podcast. A satisfying crackle that you don't get from, obviously, putting on the CD. Or especially if you've got the kind of CDs that were made in the 90s where mastering engineers fiddled with the sound, trying to make it more modern. No, no. The original vinyl is how you want to listen to Black Sabbath crackling away. And what we were discussing was, of course, it's been done to death, the impact of what Black Sabbath represented. But for some reason, in the midst of this rather strange and despairing situation, those intro notes to Black Sabbath hit us like a hammer to the effing head. And it just made me think about it made me think about the cultural impact of Black Sabbath at the time. I mean, derided by critics, slammed and shunned and ignored. And then all of a sudden, this record comes out of nowhere. And it is like nothing that had ever been before. And in those three notes, you have heavy metal, you have doom metal. Don't forget punk was a couple of years down the road with its Do you wanna dance under the moonlight? Etc, etc. But the real darkness was coming without a doubt, from Birmingham, from heavy metal. And those three notes, the devil's tritone, just seem to encapsulate, seem to be sounding the death knell for the 60s. And good riddance to it as well, if you ask me. But no, those three notes somehow seemed to entirely sum up this industrial north of England, the general hopelessness and despair and the iron smelting plants and the steel factories and the collieries and the general air of gloom. Now, you could say Sabbath were ruined by sunshine and cocaine somewhere in the mid-70s, and you'd probably have a pretty strong argument for that. But just the cultural impact of those three notes, and also uh, that was my attempt at playing my rather out-of-tune acoustic guitar. So I promise I will not play the guitar again. But... Um, I couldn't resist a little bit of Sabbath to start this off, and it just made me wonder. We were discussing, imagine hearing that record for the very first time. If you were used to listening to the usual hippy-dippy, psychedelic 60s garage stuff, of course, maybe if you were into the more blues rock that was just the precursor, it may not have seemed quite so heavy. But if you compare it to most of the things at the time, it's, it's like a bludgeon to the head, like a brick to the head. And it got me thinking about all of the S's because not only did Sabbath kick my ass, but also Seneca. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But it just made me consider these three notes, boom, 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 or whatever key I'm in. Um, This is the devil's interval, the tritone, um, a particular musical tone that for centuries was called the Devil's Interval in Latin, the Diabolus and Musica, which doesn't just mean an awful Slayer album. Um, yeah, the tone is going to be a bit heavy metal this time. So if you're here for stuff about American politics, well, come on, come on, come on. So you may not know, but yeah, that that three note sequence that is at the start of Black Sabbath is called the Devil's Interval or the Devil's Chord. And um, like I said, the Diabolus and Musica. And it was known for centuries as that in its original Latin. It's a combination of notes that creates this foreboding atmosphere. Um, explaining the musical theory of it is a little bit difficult. It's rather interesting, though, to try and understand the origin of this concept, this consequent, this sequence of notes, because they're dissonant. 
Um, and so to try and understand their place in medieval society, um, what else is dissonant? What else is The Devil's Interval? It's Purple Haze by Jimi Hendrix from Dun, 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 Dun. This is considered, um, it's, it maybe sounds off-key, creates tension, and medieval musicians and theorists, I guess, music was supposed to be the conduit between man and the divine. It was supposed to have religious firmament, religious, a religious objective. And so they understood harmony in a certain way. And, and seeing as a chord is usually composed of three notes, the pleasant sound produced by this was thought of a symbolic identification or representation of unity and harmony, the trinity of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Um, but what if, let's imagine that one of those notes was not harmonic and represented dissonance, represented a sort of dissonance in the universal harmony. Then it was, these, this note sequence was forbidden. I mean, if you consider writing pleasant-sounding music, um, you know, you could take a C major scale, the best way to describe that, I suppose, is the white keys on a piano. If you only had the white keys, then this would be a major scale. And any two-note combination will sound reasonably harmonic, except for F and B. So the combination of those two notes was used in the Middle Ages, I suppose, in Baroque music, to produce tension. I suppose you could say that our ears are... Our ears, our brains are used to hearing a certain combination of notes. They're used to finding instinct and resolution in music, acceptable as it runs through the grey matter. Whereas dissonance creates emotional tension. Roman Catholic composers in the 19th century would often use it to, for referencing the crucifixion, for referencing some um, incredibly... I suppose we would call it biblical, but dark or sinister act. Um, and it's built into classical pieces. Beethoven's Fidelio. It's in Wagner. And the link between heavy rock music and Wagner is pretty, well, it's pretty heavy, pretty obvious. In De Gotterdammerung, one of Wagner's most famous operas, um, the, the climax of one of the scenes is full of this dissonance. Something terrifying like a, the Black Mass the rumour goes that it was banned, that the diminished fifth tritone was banned by religious authorities um, and that people were even punished for using it. But if we consider that various Christian faiths and organisations have produced most of the classical Western canon of music, it's more likely that monks and other religious composers simply discouraged its use and were a form of sort of Self-censorship was going on within their music writing. I suppose they were taught that these combination of notes just wouldn't work technically, so you just didn't use them as an interval. Um, but it was recognised as a problem by religious communities as back as the ninth century. So when Sabbath do their dun-dun-dun in 1969, um, for a thousand years, religious institutions had found those combination of notes problematic. It seems such a strange concept now, sitting here, but it was called the Diabolus and Music. And they considered it to be false music, that the intervals were not natural. And then Giuseppe 
Tartini's The Devil's Trill Sonata, which is supposedly one of the most complicated and toughest pieces a virtuoso violinist could play. Um, the Mark of the Beast, he claimed, was within his within his writings. Um, and this incredibly difficult piece, he claimed in a dream he had heard the devil giving him instructions on how to do it. Well, didn't this pass into the hands of Tony Iommi? So we were busy discussing the cultural impact of a Black Sabbath and how it just set the tone for the end of the 60s. That and somehow the Rolling Stones at Ultimate, somehow not having, of course, been there or anything, but being born in the middle of the 1970s and looking back, it felt that those three notes of Sabbath pulled the curtain down on an era of the age of Aquarius, let's call it like that, um, and ushered in something darker I think culturally socially yeah maybe I'm reading too much into it but hey that's kind of what the podcast's about right anyway if I was a proper musician I imagine I would have been able to illustrate that with my pianoforte but unfortunately my Steinway is locked away in my country home and um, so I have no access to it to illustrate my point or I could reach for the acoustic guitar but I fear that I've tortured it enough lately so you'll just have to take my word for it with my clumsy explanation of dissonance and the devil's interval however that was not the point or what I imagined the point of this podcast was going to be I just wanted to talk a little bit about Sabbath about a clumsy segue maybe into punk rock and why punk rock claimed the moral high ground over heavy metal about the working to middle class divide that seems very apparent to me that nobody really seems to discuss or notice. And did punk really kill heavy metal? I mean, of course, the answer is no, of course it didn't. But if you were to believe the revisionist history that's part of that conversation, then you would have said, oh, of course it did. Anyway, imagining the cultural impact of that first Sabbath album Somehow I like to think, as I said, of those three opening notes as the crushing hammer on the age of Aquarius, like Manson sending out his minions. So how is it when you consider that Judas Priest and Black Sabbath, the originators of heavy metal, who all came from working class areas in the north of England, how did it come to pass that punk sort of stole heavy metal's working class thunder? How did that happen when you consider that, for example... The Sex Pistols were put together by Vivian Westwood and Malcolm McLaren out of a shop in Soho called Sex. Certainly not working class origins. If you want to watch a really interesting documentary about that time, I'd recommend Suburbia by Boy George, who used to work in the shop at the time. And um, here he discusses working out of a shop, out of the shop at the time, and paints a picture of a fashion-obsessed art student's clique, more interested in paying top dollar for one-off shirt prints and posing in Soho than certainly being what one could call a working class wedge. Certainly not the working class wedge, social wedge that punk revised itself as in the 1980s. How did that happen? Certainly it was clear to me or it's clear to me that Iron Maiden in 78, 79 were far more working class than The Clash were. And the Soundhouse, the club where all of those bands began, um, was far more spit and sawdust, denim and leather of working, genuine working class movement than definitely 
Soho punks or art students punks. So how how did it happen that reclaimed the working class roots of heavy metal and refashioned that? I I would say that it's a lot to do with a lot to do with I think a lot of it is to do with the genuine class divide. It's clear that a band like Saxon coming out of Barnsley, out of working class area in the north of England, were far different to some of the punk bands that were coming out of, um, as I said, London. I mean, anecdotally, I have an uncle who was in a punk band of the time and is as far from working class as you can really imagine. And he said the same thing to me, that it was kind of about going down, hanging around outside the shop in the late 70s um, and just watching documentary footage um, of the shop at the time. It's clear that most of the people inhabiting those clubs uh, were certainly not working class kids. And it paints a stark contrast to the kind of kids who are going down to see an Iron Maiden show in 1980, that's for sure. And if you watch the Boy George documentary, they all move on to New Wave and New Romantic within a year or two. But yet, at the same time, the revisionist history in the 1980s would have told you that the Sex Pistols killed heavy metal. It killed hard rock. How is this possible? I mean, the Sex Pistols album had little to no impact in the USA. Their rather fateful tour of the USA is documented in a quite odd movie but it had little or no impact in the usa and sales wise it didn't really either and yet in 1980 we have ace of spades iron maiden heaven and hell rush have an album that sold five million copies but yet the sex pistols and punk was supposed to be the death knell for overindulgent stadium rock but i think you'd find that in 1980 1981 that certainly wasn't the case van halen were selling 10 million records so how has it come to pass that it unfolded like this. I would hazard a guess that it was because many of the people involved in the sort of art student punk scene of the late 70s um, went on to write for magazines, went on to write. They certainly weren't plumbers and plasterers and builders and maybe the more working class, didn't have the same working class occupations as many of the hard rock or heavy metal fans who, let's be honest, if in 1979, 1980, were you likely to be going to, uh, to a show at the weekend to let off steam, to let off energy, to have pints with your mates, or were you going to be lectured about class divides or about politics? I think that generally, politics, by and large, is the concern of the middle class. I think working class people are too busy to be concerned or to be caught up in many of those things. Of course... Things are going to change once we go to 1980, 1981 and bands like Discharge and the post-crass environment. But I'll get to that. I'll get to that. So how did it end up that the likes of Iron Maiden and Saxon never got the kudos they deserved for being actually where most punk claimed to be from? I think it's an old-fashioned, as I said, class issue, much like modern woke culture. I think there are similarities, like the Corbins of New Labour the Islington middle-class student acolytes who seem to most definitely hate the working class. So punk always looked down its nose at metal, I think. It's all down to who went to college or who didn't. Could it be that easy? Maybe so. Certainly a lot of 1978 art student punks went on to write for influential magazines of the mid-80s. And, you know, Sid Vicious got reframed somehow as a working-class hero when he definitely wasn't. Punk, by its very definition, got reframed into a verb, and if you ask me real punk, as we figure it didn't really happen until we get to discharge crass conflict. But even still, having read Crass's autobiography, 
Crass were a bunch of um, impressionable art students who basically had their own commune. I mean, they certainly weren't uh, working class kids who tried to escape their um, environment or the suburban environment they were or urban decay they were trapped in. They were, you know, middle class art students who were trying to form a commune. And the symbolism that they adopted at their early shows when reading the autobiography, they, by their own admission, didn't really understand what anarchy was. They were just art students who were making um, banners to put behind them. Now, of course, their music was somewhat revolutionary in the sense that it was a form of anti-music. And there are many 1980s people that I know or I'm friends with, you know, people I know who would have said that Crass was the catalyst for a lot of the um, Hunt Saboteur movement and a lot of people who got involved in animal rights, um, veganism and a lot of worthwhile leftism in the 1980s, for sure. No doubt they somehow seem to have been the um, the face that launched a thousand ships. Now, whether they are exactly what they claim to be, this is somewhat different. But for sure, until we get to discharge, crass and conflict, it doesn't really seem to have... It doesn't really seem to smell like punk to me anyway. Uh, the 70s punk seems to me to be Generation X, X-Ray Specs, one banana, two banana, three banana, four, etc. And so how did that match with what it then claimed to be as this social movement? It, for me, it seemed to have more to do with T-Rex than uh, the flamboyance of T-Rex or whatever you want to say it, um, than the boogie of status quo or... Dr. Feelgood or something like this. And I think a whole generation of new wave, new wave of British heavy metal, I think most of the people involved in that scene ended up being plumbers, electricians, people who worked with their hands who were not necessarily going to revise history. Does it seem familiar? So why did punk rock look down its nose so spectacularly at heavy metal? I think it's because of metal's lack of political awareness and its embrace of escapism, which let's be honest, if you were growing up in a sense of a, or surrounded by urban decay, that's probably what you would grab a hold of most, as opposed to being, as I said, a middle class art student who perhaps embraced the Marxist or the whatever ism that was happening at the time that you had the time and space to become involved in. I mean, it's... It's a very strange thing, and it continues to this day. Most New Wave British heavy metal seven inches at the time, which, by the way, far outnumber the amount of punk independent singles in the late 70s, didn't have a political conscience, um, which no doubt cast metal as, you know, the class dunce. Yet chances were, chances are, if you worked in a colliery all week, the last thing you wanted to do, as I said, at the weekend was to be lectured to about politics. You wanted to go to the footy, get the pints in, and go and see Maiden or Raven or Angel Witch, of course, I'm being a bit romantic and you can disagree and do your own podcast about it if you wish. And of course, deliberately annoying about the whole thing. I do get that. Yet it's even telling in the um, George, the Boy George documentary that by 81 or earlier, most of the people who were involved in, the so in Soho in the shop in sex were bored being punks and moved quickly on to post-punk and then to new romantics. So the same people who had Mohawks in 1978 had skinny ties and eyeliner in 81 and 82. This is, of course, not to take anything from, for example, never mind the bollocks as a as a classic rock record, which it most definitely is. Um, the rhythm, the rhythm section seemed to me to be more, I suppose, hired guns from the local bar rock scene, more Dr. Feelgood and Quo fundamentally than 
Not to say, of course, that if you watch that Ramones show from 77 or 78, the one that kind of set the torch paper alight, um, it isn't full of incredibly vibrant and new energy. And this three chord ideal definitely was an antidote to the flamboyance of something like Yes or Genesis, for example. But to say that it killed it is fundamentally wrong. So how could it have? Of course, we cannot, we can't underestimate the impact of the early 80s anarcho-punk bands. As I said, Crass, for example, launched a thousand hunt saboteurs with a political conscience, set the ball rolling for the napalm debts of this world. And more power to them, because despite not really knowing what they were doing, it would appear to me their political conscience launched um, a, a sort of righteous movement in the 1980s that was more aware of these things. But at the same time, it's really more the 77 stuff and how that's appraised that confuses me. That punk rock became more or less a verb, you know? You know some LA photographer somewhere on some balcony is opening, a, is opening a young model to give him, is opining a young model to give him more punk attitude. Give me more punk. And it became a, a fashion verb, which always made me quite proud of the fact that heavy metal never was that cool, that never had that cachet around it, that people used it as a party verb or whatever you want to call it. If you ask me, metal always had the recklessness that punk thought it had, but it was too bound by its own middle class political concerns and always seemed to me to police its own, its own scene far too much to be the open and free state that it claimed to be. Certainly anecdotally, most of my metal friends who fell into the scene ended up falling out of it, tired of being policed and corralled into groupthink. Whereas metal never really kind of cared and never really cared for that. It was always the haven for dropouts, the haven for people who would have fallen through the social rung and couldn't really fall any further and who were sort of accepted in the metal scene. Um, the social malcontents, egg and chips, sorry Saxon, kind of chaps who never read their Foucault or understood their place in the patriarchy. And I still think these kind of clash issues exist. I mean, this is to pull it up to something more modern day um, and to try and offend even more people, um, to put a more, more modern context to it. This is, I think, what happened to black metal. You know, when I, I often am flippant and say to modern um, modern black metal fans is that black metal ruined punk. Black metal ruined punks and then punks ruined black metal, so to say. What do I mean by that? How do I explain that? How do I justify that? Well, I would say this, is that black metal was its own ecosystem in the early 90s. It was its own tape trading underground scene. And true enough, it had an awful lot of youthful male exuberance and it kind of gonzoid quality to it but it was its own ecosystem and the people within it understood it and perhaps perhaps understood that some of the symbolism was um, you know the byproduct of trying to be the most extreme as possible and in the mid 90s in the mid 90s because of magazines like wire magazine there was so much groundbreaking music being made in the early to mid 90s for anybody to ignore from the emperors to the bursums to the dark thrones and an awful lot of punks migrated into the metal scene. They migrated across into black metal because the music was so fucking exciting. And let's be honest, a hell of a lot more exciting than what was happening in punk. Because at least punk, to me, 
was a kind of a one-trick pony musically in the sense that it was it had a social conscience but it could never be too dark too fast too slow too complicated generally to me as a metal fan there was always something more extreme happening in metal something that was even further on the outlying on the outreaches of musicality that punk just generally couldn't go to so in 1988 or 1989, I knew that I liked Bathory more than Minor Thread. As much as I love Minor Thread and what it meant to me was very special, when I first heard Sodom it et Black Flag for Breakfast, I remember we had a bunch of friends that would meet on a Saturday with the vinyls that they'd bought that weekend, um, which would make a great little movie now, if anybody wants to uh, sub me for that or get in contact. And I will happily write you a script for that. But no, we had a bunch of... We had a bunch of um, guys and girls who would meet at the weekend with the vinyls that they bought. It was the first time I'd heard Depeche Mode, The Cure, Black Flag. But my friend had been, you know, he'd been building up Black Flag to be, this is the most aggressive thing you've ever heard. This is the most sonically this, that, and the other thing. And he played it, you know, TV party tonight. And I thought, oh, okay. And that day I'd bought Sodom in the Sign of Evil, which is a ferociously violent record. And it just kicked seven shades of shit out of Black Flag and I could see my friend's face when he put it on how his jaw dropped and he just kind of went my god how is that how is that fucking metal and it was so extreme compared to any of the punk that my friends were playing and I could see that their noses were put out of joint by how extreme Bathory under the sign of Black Mark or Sodom were or those early violent thrash metal bands but yet they didn't really want to like it because it was fantastical it was from a different place, which was leather clad, which had long hair, which seemed to lack any of the political nuance, the sort of middle class nuances and concerns that they had at the time. And true enough, myself as a heavy metal fan throughout most of my teen years with punk friends or punk um, acquaintances, certainly they would have looked down their nose at all of those bands. And then when black metal came along, it was a different kind of thing because what happened then was that punks migrated into the black metal scene and sort of set about educating it or sending it back to school or re how can we say re-educating it completely missing the point of what black metal was the reckless energy that was at the heart of that black metal that gonzoid kind of energy well i've said that word twice um, and to me a liberating energy because it was about not being judged so to speak or bound by convention and they also attempted to emasculate it to train it to repackage it to make it eco-friendly to make it all of those kind of things and once you started to do this to black metal then you you know you you divested it of its claws you ground its teeth down and that's where black metal then moved in a different direction and i mean of course there were some good bands to come out of it I'm not going to name the names some of them are my peers some of them I know very well but it's very similar to what happened in 1980 and 1981 metal was always viewed I think as this low IQ stepchild that needed reprogramming politically correct burzum who needed that the whole beauty of that scene to me was that it was reckless and it didn't second guess itself and was allowed just to be now, this sounds like I'm sort of ragging on punk rock, so to say. Oh, I, am, I am and I'm not. I'm trying to, you know, be a little bit uh, controversial. But having lived through this kind of condescension since the late and early, well, mid-80s, um, it's always 
being clear that the kid listening to Black Fag, as I said, claimed moral superiority over the kid listening to the first Iron Maiden. But again, much as I like Henry Rollins, Steve Harris is the hero, if you ask me. Steve Harris is the picture beside the word integrity in the Dictionary of Music, if you ask me, as I said. So is it merely the same way that sci-fi nerds were picked on by the jock sports kids? Mm, could it be? Is heavy, metal, is heavy metal the misunderstood Brexit of its generation? Could be. But the fact that metal was about escapism placed it at odds with the activism of punk rock. So maybe it was always on a collision course. And don't get me wrong, I've loads of time for punk, as I said. But then again, we all, we all find Tool fans unbearable. So maybe it's just some kind of simple tribalism. Of course, black metal, by its very nature, was misunderstood. And it always had to be. It ha was supposed to shock, to be reckless. And trying to explain to an old punk friend of mine that some of the symbolism adopted didn't necessarily have the meaning or the thought behind it because that's not really what the intention was but it was it's hard to explain it's very sim similar to the the nuance that somebody might try to explain to somebody with let's say the neo-folk scene and anybody who's stepped in and out of the neo-folk scene um, bands like death and june all this kind of stuff will realize that so much of it is high camp and about uniforms and about um, there's an awful lot of sort of sexual energy to the neo-folk neo goth scene that's completely misunderstood from the outside. So people see um, the uniforms, they see the patronage of, um, I suppose, thigh-high leather boots, and they misunderstand it in the very same way that people misunderstood black metal's intentions. And this right here is probably where an awful lot of the cancel culture in black metal began. It started there in that mid-90s period where punks migrated into black metal and brought politics from that side of the fence. And as I said, uh, in the re-education of black metal, it finally took its form in the shape of cancel culture, trying to cancel bands from shows, whether it was Taka or Mugwa or Destroyer 666 or a ton of other bands. At the heart of this and this, it's a, it's a complicated social um, conundrum. But at the heart of that is the punk rock politics that just couldn't reconcile itself with some of the elements that it found within black metal. But rather than leave black metal to its own devices, manifested itself in this form of cancel culture. And especially the original intentions of black metal in the 90s, by now somebody who's 20 wouldn't have ever, of course, grown up in that period. So would completely misunderstand all of these intentions. And to them, you know, we've all anecdotally heard stories about bands being cancelled from festivals because someone in the crowd had a T-shirt that somebody working at the venue disagreed with. No, that's not untrue. That's definitely true. I can say that's happened to friends of mine. Someone in the crowd at your show had a Burzum shirt. I mean, am I my brother's keeper, etc. And this became something that grew and grew and grew within the extreme metal scene until at one stage at a festival I won't name, I saw the security with a list of about 50 to 100 bands with T-shirts that they decided to ban anyone wearing one from entering the festival site. One of the shirts being a shirt of that very festival, which had a tank on the front. Anyway, 
I digress. I digress. But I think from such small seeds grow such things like, for example, cancer culture. And maybe this is where I should have started the podcast. And maybe this is a whole other podcast in itself, which is much more interesting than just rambling through what 1977 meant. But, you know, I can do. We can look at that, too. The narrative was that the Sex Pistols killed off prog rock. It killed off heavy metal. But heavy metal hadn't really even got started yet. And certainly by 1982, Iron Maiden is one of the biggest bands in the world. Um, certainly by the time 77, 78 came around, for a lot of the hard rock bands who'd started off in 70 were at their end. The Led Zeppelins of this world um, were, it should be said, um, bloated, bloated sort of, bloated corpses by that stage floating floating down the river ready to be punctured and 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 sunk to the bottom and in that sense punk did um empower a whole generation of people to pick up an instrument and get away with playing three chords but again like i said if that stood alone as the narrative that would be fine but this other story that it sort of killed everything else off doesn't make any sense Anyway, what am I talking about? What am I talking about? The intention was that from the first opening three chords of Black Sabbath, that I would ramble a bit about the cultural influence of Black Sabbath and the working class origins of new wave of British heavy metal and heavy metal. And it always confused and I suppose angered me as the way that punk reclaimed or claimed heavy metal's working class roots for its own and cast Heavy metal is the opposite of what it was. Of course, we all have images of Bruce Springsteen, or Bruce Springsteen, God, sorry for mentioning that name. Um, Bruce Dickinson fencing, you know, his way across um, somewhere in a flouncy shirt. Bruce Dickinson aside, if we look at Venom or we look at Jaguar or we look at Angel Witch or Iron Maiden or, of course, Saxon and all these bands, it's clear that this is the pub rock, the barroom, the barroom brawling scene of uh, working class kids just trying to escape from the factory at the weekend. Certainly not, as I said, the um, mohawked Soho art students who seem to be the main customers at uh, Sex. If you don't know what I'm talking about when I say sex, sex is the shop that Malcolm McLaren, the manager of the Sex Pistols, and Vivian Westwood, the fashion designer, uh, f opened basically around uh, 77, 78, and Malcolm McLaren managed the Sex Pistols. Anyway. However, you know, having said all of this, I am quite a big fan of bands like Cox Power and all that kind of stuff, and I do like myself some two-tone and some madness here and there in the specials and certainly that wasn't the um as i said that certainly wasn't the soho art student crowd so maybe i've you know wrongly calibrated this podcast and i'm sort of aiming in the wrong direction but there's certainly a whole bunch of podcasts maybe in there to be to make other you know kind of sidesteps from definitely the the black metal thing which is more my generation i suppose is something that i could dig into but and maybe I'm just have my sights trained on a certain kind of 
a certain 77, 78 scene that by the time you watch The Exploited in 1981 playing in a squat somewhere is long, long forgotten. And they've moved on to, well, graduating from college, I guess. So, you know, I can admit that I might be wide of the mark here and there about all of this. But certainly at the heart of what I was trying to get at was this idea that somehow, as I said, 77 punk killed hard rock and killed heavy metal. And the idea that somehow something with certain middle class origins managed to somehow reclaim um, or claim to be some sort of social wedge, some working class wedge. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. Now I'm repeating myself and let's get to the end of this. Anyway, it's been a bit of a ramble. It's been a bit of a ramble. I'm sure I've managed to offend somebody or other or miss the point of this and that. And maybe I can get somebody on and, you know, have a Zoom cast interview with them and discuss maybe the opposite side of the argument. But at the top of this podcast, I did say that my week was my week had started with Sabbath and ended with Seneca. And I suppose if you've been listening to the podcast, you'll have known my feelings about making music in this strange time, about the the limitations on travel, that the, the dangers that the dangers that touring uh, is in and all those kind of things. And without a doubt, as I've said, it feels like being somewhat imprisoned in the city that you live in. But my dear friend Seneca, the Stoic, um, sort of kicked me in the head with um, his letters to a Stoic, letter two. So I'm going to be super pretentious and read you the letter two, and then you can, we'll end with that. This is Letters from a Stoic by Seneca. Judging from what you tell me and from what I hear, I feel that you show great promise. You do not tear from place to place and unsettle yourself with one move after another. Restlessness of that sort is symptomatic of a sick mind. Nothing, to my way of thinking, is a better proof of a well-ordered mind than a man's ability to stop just where he is and pass some time in his own company. Be careful however, that there is no element of discursiveness and desultoriness about this reading you refer to, this reading of many different authors and books of every description. You should be extending your stay among writers whose genius is unquestionable, deriving constant nourishment from them if you wish to gain anything from your reading that will find a lasting place in your mind. To be everywhere is to be nowhere. Thanks. Thanks, Seneca, for kicking me in the ass. People who spend their whole life travelling abroad end up having plenty of places where they can find hospitality but no real friendships. The same must needs be the case with people who never set about acquiring an intimate acquaintanceship with any one great writer but skip from one to another, paying flying visits to them all. Food that is vomited up as soon as it is eaten is not assimilated into the body and does not do one any good. Nothing hinders a cure so much as frequent changes of treatment. A wound will not heal over if it is made being the subject of many experiments with different ointments. A plant which is frequently moved never grows strong. Nothing is so useful that it may be of any service in the mere passing. A multitude of books only gets in one's way, so if you are unable to read all the books in your possession, you have enough when you will have all the books you are able to read. And if you say, but I feel like opening different books at different times... 
My answer to this is tasting one dish after another is the sign of a fussy stomach. And where the foods are dissimilar and diverse in range, they lead to contamination of the system, not nutrition. So always read well-tried authors. And if at any moment you find yourself wanting a change from a particular author, go back to ones you have read before. Each day too, acquire something which will help you to face poverty or death and other ills as well. After running over a lot of different thoughts, pick out one to be digested thoroughly that day. This is what I do myself. Out of the many bits I've been reading, I lay hold of one. My thought for today is something which I found in Epicurus. Yes, I actually made a practice of going over to the enemy's camp by way of reconnaissance, not as a deserter. A cheerful poverty, he says, is an honourable state, but if it is cheerful, it is not poverty at all. It is not the man who has too little who is too poor, but the one who hankers after more. What difference does it make how much there is laid away in a man's safe or in his barns, how many head of stock he grazes or how much capital he puts out of interest? If he is always after what is another's and only counts what he has yet to get, never what he already has. You ask what is the proper limit to a person's wealth? First, having what is essential, and second, having what is enough. Well, my dear friends, my dear Seneca, that is the end of episode 30-something or other. The uh, podcast approaches middle age, and it ends on that pretentious note. From Sabbath to Seneca and all points of punk in between. The show is sponsored by Hate Couture, www.hate.com. H-A-T-E-C-O-U-T-U-R-E 616.com Hateful yet tasteful clothing. Put in the promo code Alan and you get free shipping. You'll find something nasty there. Who wouldn't? So my friends, you may disagree with some of that podcast. Who knows? It's a madcap ramble across lots of different subjects. However, this is Alan Averill. This is Agitators Anonymous and metal never bends.